Hey, everybody. Welcome to the JDO Show. I am your host, J. David Osborne. And today on the show, we have Scott Adlerberg. Hello, Scott. Hello. How, how are you doing? It's uh, it's late over there. It's yeah, midnight. It's, it's a midnight. Uh, but, you know, we're under the lockdown, so time kind of ceases to exist at this point. You <laughs> should is, point out okay. when we're recording this. So, you know, right. It's all <laughs> it all stretches seamlessly together. Yes. The hours this is of the a, day and night. This is the second JDO show episode that's quarantine uh, themed. The first was my solo show where I talked about the transmigration of bodies by Yuri Herrera. Oh, and, yeah. Great uh, book. Yeah, fantastic. It was so good. And then this one, where I brought you on because it was your idea to to read this. We're talking about Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. Oh, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Just to change, I mean, I just, just to, you know, mention how we were just talking on the phone, you know, normally. And I, we might have been talking about Yuri Herrera's book because I had just read, read it also, you know, separately. Just on my end, we were talking. And I mentioned, like, next I'm going to go right into uh, Death in Venice, which I've never read. Um, and uh, you were like, let's just do a podcast. So we both, like, <laughs> spent a few days reading uh, Death in Venice. And that was, you know, we thought yeah. it's, it's, it's appropriate. So have you ever read anything by Thomas Mann? Until, any no. of it, like The Magic Mountain or, you uh -uh. know, any of these no. big... Uh, no, 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 me either. So. No. This was, this was yeah. literally my first, uh, my first foray into Thomas Mann, which I, I got a lot out of. Um, up at the top, I'll say that it's a very quick read. It's a novella, technically, right? Yeah, right, definitely. My version's about 200 pages, but they, you know, they made the type really big. They did okay. that thing where they make it all, which I like. I like that kind of airy, spaced out, mm. kind of like, so everything's not squunched together. But it's a short novel. Um, it essentially, uh, can you pronounce the, the protagonist's name for me? Oh yeah, so the, the the main character is Gustav von Aschenbach, who's yes. uh, definitely highly modeled. The edition I had, it might have been in some of yours too. I you know did a little research, but the edition I had, uh, this Dover edition, had a lot of extra stuff at the beginning and end, which was interesting. And he's a very he's modeled very closely on uh, Thomas Mann. Actually, mm -hmm. Thomas uh, Mann. I'll Thomas get it right Mann. one of these days. Yeah. Maybe it's Thomas. It's definitely Mann. That much I know. I just like to say <laughs> <laughs> the Thomas. Maybe I'm adding. Maybe I'm putting yeah. it on a little thick. Yeah. Uh, awesome. uh, but um, yeah. So he's a writer. This the main character Gustav von Aschenbach, and he's a writer who I mean has reached a certain point where he has like, this mastery of style, which is definitely you know Mann. I mean apparently. Like the thing, the addition I had said, like everyone considers him and this book, you know, he had an absolute mastery of German prose style. And mm -hmm, apparently mm -hmm. when he wrote Death in Venice, he'd had early, a lot of early success. Uh, I think Budenbrooks was, I think that's an early, one of his earlier books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, an early success and he was considered great already, but hadn't really had anything for several years of note. And when he wrote Death in Venice, he said like he very it said he very consciously like put all of his craft all of his mastery all of his linguistic skill into this you know into this book just to once again like essentially write a masterpiece mm -hmm. and let it, you know mm -hmm. essentially let everyone know he hadn't gone anywhere you know and he which is what he did right. you know basically right. yeah right um so i think rather than sort of summarizing the whole plot uh yeah. we can kind of go through it and i have uh, tons of quotes. I'm going to try to uh, keep it brisk and keep it moving. But there's so much you can talk about in such a little book. So 
at the beginning of the novel, von Aschenbach is uh, is basically just being described. He's sort of perambulating around Munich, where he lives, and mm. uh, he's sort of longing to travel, right? Right. Um, there's kind of a great and surreal scene that echoes a surreal scene towards the end where he's sort of looking at this man um, and he begins to fantasize about a jungle and a, and a panther. Um, mm. And from there, it kind of gives you a little bit about his past. So this famous writer, um, who's clearly based on the real author, um, I, th- I thought the beginning just had all these great little bits about writing and about mm. art. Uh, I did so, yeah. And and one thing that I sort of related to, because I was very young when I wrote my first book, uh, it talks about Aschenbach as a, as a youth, because he sort of came right out the gate with this very studious, um, you know, nose-to-the-grindstone kind mm, of attitude. Me- mentality. Mentality, yeah. right. And uh, <laughs> it talks about how when he was a younger author, he, quote, he had overindulged the intellect, overcultivated erudition, and ground up the seed corn, revealed secrets, right. <laughs> defamed talent, betrayed art. Yes, even as his works entertained, elevated, and animated the gullible reader, he, the youthful artist, held the 20-year-olds in thrall to his cynical remarks about the questionable nature of art and artistic <laughs> genius. So he talked a lot of shit. He talked right. a lot of shit as well. Exactly. That. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's no. Right. Right. I just want to say, you go on because it's good. One, just want to say, like, one thing I got from reading from reading this, which is a reminder that to me, and I, I don't know why I always have to sort of like remind it. Like when you go back to some of these these classic novels, which, uh, you know, they're in a different era at this point, and some of the like we never read Death in Venice in school, but you read these kinds of things in school, and you're not really ready to read this kind of stuff seriously in high school yeah, but right. now that i'm older is like a lot of these writers are very ironic and they're actually very funny not ha ha jokey but they're so truthful and like you just said they might be written in a way that you know this sort of style that stately style this you know sort of mm-hmm, magisterial mm-hmm. style but basically what he's saying is something that's eternally was a young guy who talked a lot of shit they're so truthful you know yeah. what I mean? You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, that's, you, you know, you, you sort of forget, like, and I think that's a, a, a fault of, like, the way a lot of literature is taught. They make it mm-hmm. seem so mm-hmm. distant and Olympian, mm-hmm. and it's really not. <laughs> you know what I mean? What he's right. talking about right. is not. It really isn't. Yeah, no, and then, so that leads me to this next one. That's just, there's so much to get to in this book, right? Um, yeah, yeah. There's, right. uh, there's uh, this great bit about writing and, and solitude, right? Um the observations and encounters of a man of solitude and few words are at once more nebulous and more intense than those of a gregarious man. His thoughts more ponderable, more bizarre, and never without a hint of sadness. Images and perceptions that might easily be dismissed with a glance, a laugh, and exchange of opinions occupy him unduly. They are heightened in the silence, gain in significance, turn into experience, adventure, emotion. And then this bit is really good. Solitude begets originality, bold and disconcerting beauty, poetry. But solitude can also beget perversity, disparity, the absurd, and the forget- forbidden. Right. Now, I remember that quote. That's a great quote. Yeah, that's, that's a struck, good one. And, that yeah. struck a chord with me also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, and, when, and, the book, and the book then goes on to show that, actually, mm-hmm, the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and he's saying that in the context. So he's decided to go on vacation, and he's decided to go to Venice, of the title. And he's on the boat, 
and you know von Aschenbach, he's kind of he's an older guy in his 50s and when he's on the boat he sees uh this old guy who's basically dressed like a kid our version of it would be like if you saw a guy of around 50 in like i don't know baggy pants right right like a do-rag right you'd be right which i I have seen i have seen yeah no absolutely right um in Oklahoma, it'd be like the guy who's like of that age. There was this guy who actually used to go to the corner store uh, when I lived in Portland, and mm-hmm. he was like that. He had like he would is this old white guy, and he would mm-hmm. wear big baggy Fubu clothes, and he had mm-hmm. a this and but he you could tell that he was older. So von Aschenbach is is obsessed and and upset by the perversity of this old man with these young guys, right? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a bit foreshadowing, right? Totally, yeah. It foreshadows him, and it foreshadows like even a figure he meets at the end. Mm, um, right, right, right. That right. guy at the end who plays the music and is kind of this old clownish figure. Right, right. Totally, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, no, no, absolutely. But also the, I just like going, you know, going into that sort of like he he really begins the book, you know, as you were saying with these sort of kind of. Um, you know, talking about who, who he is and as an artist, and he, he really does a masterful job, Mon does a masterful job of, like, presenting this character who you, you know, he gets into his mind, but there's a sort of, like, kind of a bit of an irony, too, because he talks about how, like, he'd written this, you know, this book, The Miserable Man. That's, like, one of his claims to fame, this novel he wrote, mm-hmm, and he had mm-hmm. worked for years. So it's hard, it's, it's kind of like, you know, that's what I was saying. Like a lot of the, he's, there's a, again, what I wasn't expecting, this kind of an ironic quality that's f- funny in a way. It's a very uh, kind of ironic portrait of a writer. He's serious about him because he talks about how serious and industrious he is. And yet he's also kind of ironic and like, what did all of this industry and nobility of style lead him to? You know, right, he's kind of, right. he's kind of exhausted and everything. You're like, and his, right. and his book, the book that he wrote, which was kind of a self-portrait, was called "The Miserable Man." Right? I mean, right. That's, you know, right. Uh, you know, the the writer's life. You know, in a sense. Yeah. And a yeah. great writer. Uh-huh. And also, yeah, yeah. also, I also like he has a part where let me see if I can find it real fast. Um, where he talks about um, sort of the progression of um, how his works had gone from. Um, Sort of, you know, they were they were liked by young people, and mm-hmm. then he kind of changed mm-hmm. his style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And by the time, and then they sort of became the uh, kind of um, they became kind of popular, and people of all sorts sort of like saw themselves in his characters. Then mm-hmm. he kind of consciously changed his style and wrote this kind of stately style. And now he's like, you know, in the school books, he's read in school. That's mm-hmm. like the final mm-hmm. jur- final right. step on the journey to greatness is you're read by school children. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's this it's this move, and if you find it, that would be great. But yeah, it's this bit about uh, essentially him moving from constantly attempting to show off to basically showing as he progressed, he got simpler and simpler, and he took away all these extraneous words. And it's kind of it kind of bears out when you hear advice from you know really successful writers, people like Stephen King, stuff like that. They're like, yeah, like, actually, I don't think, does Stephen King have a thing against adverbs? I think he does. Um, Elmore Leonard did for sure. Elmore Leonard, yeah, definitely. Almost never, you know, Mm -hmm. do not use adverbs as little as possible. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
And I think that that's, if I remember correctly, that's what it was saying in that too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here he, he sort of basically says, uh, you know, he talks about, um, um, you know, how his talent developed, um, and uh, how, besides how much sport, defiance, and pleasure there is in the self-making of a talent. With time, and an element of official pedagogy entered into Gustav Aschenbach's productions. In later years, his style dispensed with forthright audacities, with subtle new nuances. He transformed himself here into the exemplary established author, the polished <laughs> traditionalist, the conservative, formal, even formulaic. And as the story about Louis XIV goes, the aging man banished all vulgar words from his vocabulary. Yes, yeah. It was then that the Board of Education included selected pages from his works in compulsory primary school readers. It was in conformity with his own views, and he did not decline, you know, when yeah. a German ruler... So he, that, I mean, the, the irony of, like, someone works and works and works, and he's obviously a great writer, you know, great... And the final, like, reward is he's read by mm -hmm. school children. Yeah. Primary school. Right. You know, right, right. Yeah. He, he gets the he gets the approval of the Board of Education. So from Bohemians to the Board of Education, that was his progress. That's interesting, too, that there's, again, that progression toward towards youth. Right. There's got to be some kind of thing. That yeah, that's a good point. I didn't even you know. Yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Moving from like the world of uh, growing up, you're always sort of looking forward to this adulthood. Mm. And then by the time that. Von Aschenbach gets to this place, he realizes that something's missing. And it's that it's that grass is always greener syndrome, right? It's like yeah. now that he's older, the, the highest honor would be to be able to inter interface with children again. Uh in the right. book it gets a little creepy. Uh a lot a lot creepy actually. But Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I mean, probably I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this have probably read the book. I mean uh -huh. You know, it is definitely, you know, he gets to Venice and in a nutshell, um, he checks into his hotel and should say, too, I mean, I love books. Some of it, you know, Venice is a great, great, great setting for, for stories. It's, it really is a unique place. I mean, I've been to Venice, but and I so that's fun. But it is with the alleyways. You can just mm -hmm. not if you're a halfway decent writer, you cannot screw Venice up. And the great writers like uh Daphne du Maurier wrote a great one, Don't Look Now. You know, there's a bunch. It's so unusual and so strange. It has this otherworldly atmosphere. And so even when he like, gets to Venice and he's taking a, a gondolier and stuff and he has a misadventure with an unauthorized gondolier who tries to rip him off, basically, that part's all really good. But essentially, he gets to Venice and he becomes completely enraptured and obsessed with uh, it's hard. It's a fourteen-year-old, fifteen-year-old yeah, boy. I believe they say fourteen at the beginning. Fourteen, right? Okay. Polish. With a Polish, there on vacation with his family. He has three sisters, a nanny, his mother. Just, just an ordinary boy, basically. Nothing mm -hmm. unusual about him. And to von Aschenbach, how does he describe him? He's like a god. He's like god. He's like a mm -hmm. a sculpture incarnate, right? Per mm -hmm. Beauty is beauty incarnate, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's the story. I mean, it's just so it's a little bit of a precursor, like you had mentioned once. To, uh, we were talking earlier uh, to Lolita. It definitely is, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Would you say? Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. Yeah, and the the kind of um, it's it's hard for me to tease apart. And we'll get to the bit about uh, why this is a plague novel, I guess, mm. towards the end. Right. But right. Uh, so what fascinated me, mm. uh, well, it made me uncomfortable, honestly, like reading. Mm -hmm. 
pages and pages of this guy uh, essentially I mean he he stalks the kid so much that at some point the the kid's mother starts to seem to notice right and, they seem and to yeah se- seem to right right even but the boy seems to notice if that's not right. a figment of Hockenbach's you know imagination sure yeah. right right and so but he's just he's completely he's just going on and on and on and at first you know, maybe when you read something like this, you kind of don't want to believe that it's sexual in nature. Uh, but at first, you could maybe misconstrue it as like a, an appreciation, like like the way that a person would appreciate a work of art. Right. right? Um, and then so as it goes on, it becomes it becomes very clear via the, the dream sequence that it is, in fact, a uh, uh, kind of a, a sexual obsession. Right. Right. Or at least becomes that. If it wasn't that at right. first, it definitely becomes that. Yeah. Right. Right. So oh, I think he's again, I think he, he's playing with this idea of people's lust for youth because Mon seems to be very sort of derisive towards uh, people who don't maintain their kind of like adultness when they get there and sort of mm-hmm. turn their eye back towards youth and sort of obsess over it. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Um, I think so. I mean, I do. I, I did read that in a, the basically the the story itself and the obsession with the boy is based on something Mon experienced. It oh, was okay. a real because the, the thing I read had a whole thing at the end. There was a real boy. He gave the real name. Uh, and the, the boy, the, I think the, the real what was his name in the uh, in the, it was short for Tadeus, right? His uh, Ted, Tazio, 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 right? Of course, Tazio. The real Tazio must have died fairly young because they said, like years later, his brother, his real life brother, like talked about it and said, like I was Tazio's brother, and that you know. But apparently, in real life, the real Thomas Mann like did not make like a fool of himself. Obviously, he didn't die. He didn't harass the boy or anything. But he had this experience where he just was completely like smitten. And I think he, that's maybe also when he kind of sort of fully realized he had homosexual inclinations because he mm-hmm. was married and had kids and everything else. Very, you know, sort of respectable figure, Thomas Mann. But in the, in the story, he takes what, something that actually did kind of happen in Venice, <coughs> and all of that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, I think I agree with you. He sort of, I think he binds up a couple of things. He sort of starts out like four seeing this boy as like the embodiment of beauty, like an, like an artistic object, because he's kind of an esthete, you could say, von Aschenbach. But it, be, it transforms into what's clearly like a sexual obsession, which he admits to at the end. He says that, right? He says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like all of us who think that we be the, you know, uh, he mentions like the platonic ideal of beauty. It, he, he says like it never just stays at that level and it always becomes essentially sexual. That's kind of what he says mm. at the end. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, and we should make it clear too. It's not like Lolita. He doesn't narrate. The, it's told in the third person. This is not right. Aschenbach telling right. the story. So mm-hmm. there's kind of like this distance, and he goes into Aschenbach's mind, and the narrator kind of pulls back. So it's not like where you're getting it like Humbert Humbert. You're just following it all from Humbert's point of view. It's very different. It's a very different reading experience. Mm-hmm. But I think I think one of the things that what it was also about was like this sort of like people who like fall head over heels for youth or try to maintain youthfully as this kind of contempt for that. But also like this division between or this tension between 
the classic Apoll Apollonian and Dionysian. And apparently, Thomas Mann, being German, he was highly influenced and a very big reader of Nietzsche, Wagner. So, and the birth of tragedy, which is Nietzsche's, you know, whole thing about the difference between the Apoll Apollonian, you know, Apollo, rationality, light, and the Dionysian, frenzy, mm. excess, sexual, uh, uh, you know, sex sexual um sexual excess the book is very much i think about that because he starts out with this sort of controlled manner and someone describes how he says that one of his critics early on in his career had said he was a man who always was like this and the critic said he made a fit a clenched fist aschenbach was always mm -hmm, like this mm -hmm, clenched mm -hmm. fist instead of like this and then he opened his hand that's what the critic said he's not loose mm -hmm. and in the book, there are a lot of scenes as the book goes on where Aschenbach, his arms are hanging loosely, his arms are limp, his hands are limp. He loses it. He goes from completely in control to mm. Dionysian, and that like that last dream he had is completely like frenzied. Mm. Where, you know, remember he has this this it's last like, dream that's yeah, a great it's like scene. With, yeah. all the, with all the creatures and the, yeah, all that creatures kind of stuff. tearing yeah. apart. So I think a lot of it is about that. It's sort of like this loss of control. Uh from, you know, the sort of rationality, the noble, the, the great man with his style, mm. and he mm -hmm. completely gets, uh, and it's youth that undoes him, I guess, youth and beauty as he sees it, that does undo him. But it you're was, right, he does have that, because at the end, when he, um, towards the end, he's like so obsessed with trying to look good, and they, they, they show this in the movie really well, it's, he's grotesque, he puts on this, the barber puts on this makeup and this lipstick on him, basically, he must look grotesque, right? His hair is all mm, fluffed mm. up, and he's this old man. You know? Right, right. Um, yeah, trying to appear youthful, you know, younger yeah. than he is. Uh, so, and, uh, you oh, know, no, go ahead. Yeah. Okay, I was going to say, as with the, the stuff about uh, beauty, there's some good passages here. Um, he does a lot with, uh, I guess, Socrates talking yeah. to Phaedrus. Phaedrus, uh, right. Yeah, so it says... Uh, Socrates instructed Phaedrus in the nature of longing and virtue. He spoke to him of the intense trepidation the man of feeling experiences when his eye beholds a representation of eternal beauty. He spoke to him of the desires of the base and impious man who cannot acknowledge beauty when he sees its likeness and is incapable of reverence. He spoke of the holy terror that seizes the noble man when a godlike countenance or perfect body appears before him. So that's very interesting, this idea of this is towards the middle of the book. And mm. what this seems to be saying to me is that it's actually, uh, it's like next to holiness to be able to really uh, experience art and to be able to sort of internalize it. And then he, this is from, I took screenshots on my phone for these quotes. So <laughs> That's I'm, good, yeah. I'm, I'm guessing. So this is, oh, this is page, were these next to each other? Okay, so one was 83, so this is 85. This is a little bit later. Um <laughs> Nothing gladdens a writer more than a thought that can become pure feeling and a feeling that can become pure thought. Just such a pulsating thought, just such a precise feeling was then in the possession and service of the solitary traveler. Mm. Nature trembles with bliss when the mind bows in homage to beauty. Mm. It's like... I have to, I'm looking at it now. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah those are... Because we also, by the way, I do want to talk, like, there's interesting things about uh, translation, right? Because I'm wondering how many of those words sort of 
matched up with what you were reading. All right, but, I, I'm uh, looking at it right. So you want me to read the same Yeah, passage? no, I'm, I'm actually really yeah, interested. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is what it says. An author finds great joy in the idea that can be totally transformed into emotion and uh, the emotion that can be totally transformed into an idea. Just such a throbbing idea, such a precise emotion was then in the possession and service of that solitary man. The idea that nature trembles with rapture when the intellect bows in homage to beauty. Then it says wow. he suddenly felt the desire to write. So it's very, it's, a lot of the words are very different. Yeah, feeling, yeah. Of, see, this is the fascinating thing about like translation, because in my version where it says, uh, when uh, thought can become pure feeling, it said idea can become what now? Emotion. Emotion. That's wow, a and that's, a, that's different, yeah. That's yeah. different, yeah. Wow. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a fascinating, we could talk about, about translation. Now that's fascinating. It really is. I think Come so, on. because doesn't that change the, like a thought and an idea are not the same thing, right? No, a, no. a thought can be fleeting. A thought can be impulse. An idea is kind of a, gosh, how would, I'm, it's getting tricky here without actually using the word itself, but. It's it's deeper in a way. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. Like uh, an agglomeration of thought, right? Yeah, it's like an agglomeration of thoughts or it might even be more abstract in a way than a thought. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. To me, it seems to me. A thought is usual, can be, is very concrete. I mean, that's just my idea. That's my, my idea of it. And even the, even the difference between feeling and emotion, they're not right. exactly the same. One right? uh, emotion feels more solid and like something that's almost like more in the past, but, but feeling is something that you get, you know, when you, I don't know, you just, you just feel right. I, that's, right. that is, that is such a, this could be, like we said, we, we could be going down a, a, a tumultuous path here because we could just end up <laughs> yeah. talking about what, what, what word did he use on page 120 instead yeah. of, you know what I mean? But, um, but that that passage to me is also interesting with the idea of the writer chasing after this idea of transforming a, a feeling into um, uh, or transforming like a thought into feeling and doing yeah. that by by writing, um, which, again, as a person who writes, I found myself identifying with a lot yeah, of the stuff yeah. that he that he writes here. It's like I, I know what he's talking about. Right. I, That's how. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's exactly how I felt. You felt like I, I that I knew, I got a, a, a strong. He he sort of he sort of however you translate it, there's just the the kind of the notion of taking inchoate, chaotic, whatever you want to call it, vague, unformed feeling or emotion or sentiment, whatever you want to call it. You know, let's into idea and thought, and then putting that into words struck a chord you know what yeah, i mean right that, the first that, part is like right. arguing with yourself in the shower right it's like you have a you wake up in the morning and you feel anxious about something so you're in the shower and you're think you're turning over like why do i have this feeling in my gut is this indigestion mm. do i feel bad about <laughs> right. something well let me go over this that and the other and then maybe you go down to to write it down you keep a diary or something and it's sort of these half-formed thoughts that you have start coming out as words. And it's interesting because sometimes you can do that. And I almost wonder if when you write down the words, if there's any real truth to them. But they sort of become retroactively true. They mm. sort of become, like, once they're put down in symbols, uh, 
you might not necessarily be recording anything anymore. You might be forming, right? You might actually be. So now you know why your stomach hurts because you, you've written it down and it turns out your stomach hurts because you, you feel bad because you said something mean to a friend or something. Mm, mm. And But that's might not be why your your stomach actually hurts, right? It could right. very well that's just true. be in, indigestion, but it you've turned <laughs> yeah, you turned feeling point. you've turned feeling into thought and then thought into words on a page. And there's so many steps there. And it's mm-hmm. interesting that writers feel like I think we feel that we know ourselves very well, that we have the ability to do that really well. Um, but it's almost like are we are we're really not doing that at all, if you think about it. I know, I know. Who, who's to say? Um, at least it's probably right near. It's on this thing, on my Kindle here. It's like the next scrolled page over. So this has got to be. It's basically like the next same pa- later in that paragraph with the okay. thought idea. This is one that I really found that struck a real chord, and it's interesting in light of how things are today in writing and art in general. I think he talks about. I'll you know I'll read a little bit from this translation. He says uh, he's he's wanted to do some writing. He's sitting on the beach, mm-hmm. and okay. now yeah. he gets the urge to write. Which apparently even in the notes here again in this edition, when Mon was on this trip where he saw the Tatsio, he actually had he wrote something that had nothing to do with Tatsio, but he actually did like write something that was published that was very well regarded as a short little piece while lying on the beach at the Lido. You know while mm-hmm. lying sitting there. So, mm-hmm. but he says. Um, Anyway, so he's sitting there, he, he has these ideas of thought, emotion, and he gets the desire to write, and he says, moreover, he desired to do this work in Tazio's presence, because Tazio's nearby him on the beach, on the Lido in Venice, to take the boy's form as a model for his writing, to adapt his style to the lines of that body, which seemed godlike to him, and transfer his physical beauty to the intellectual sphere. So he's talking about that, and mm-hmm. then in his little essay, and then he, a little bit later, and I thought this was, a, I, I outlined this, um, it is certainly a good thing that the world can only see finished works of art without knowing their origins, the mm-hmm. conditions mm-hmm. Yes. for their existence. For knowledge of the sources from which the artist derived his inspirations would often confuse and frighten away his public, <laughs> yeah. thus vitiating the effects of his outstanding achievement. And I thought that, is a fantastic because that's exactly part of the problem today you know too much about the writer or the artist and all of the creepy sources of where it came from and then they don't look at the art you look at the person this person's yeah. a creep this person did that you know we mm-hmm. all know about that it goes on and on sure sure and he's saying it actually in terms at least i'm not talking about morals or what people might have done that's a whole nother art but in terms of the art itself and I think I agree with mine. The less you know about how it was created, the more you just appreciate the art. Because the source yeah. of the art might be the ugliest, weirdest, most perverse. That's kind of what he's saying here, I think. Would confuse and frighten away the public if they knew the source of the inspiration, right? Right, 100%. And there's a flip side to that about how banal the source could be, right? Like you could That's another be thing. Yeah, looking like a, at, a, yeah. at this great work of art and it turns out that, you know, I was sitting at a table and I thought that uh, that's weird. That ketchup bottle looks funny. And that's why I wrote my, my masterpiece, the ketchup you're bottle on the table. Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It works both <laughs> ways. That's true. <laughs> I know. But there is this like, whole thing. Go ahead. No, no. And then it's the opposite. You're like, oh my God, what a letdown. You're right. No, it's, yeah. it works both ways. You should never know because that's 
something that's supposed to get lost in the alchemical process of writing. So yes, with the, right. this quote that we talked about the first time about translating uh, thought into pure feeling into or pure feeling into thought into words is a is a process that has many steps to it. And it's largely boring in the same way that I don't maybe there's a group of people out there who enjoy doing this, but in the same way watching uh, a, t- a table get made. You can right, have a right. beautiful table at the end, but do you want to know the story about how the person chopped down the tree? That, <laughs> right, that's right. it. That's the story. That's you know. The story. So right. when you're when you're going down, I mean, if you think about it, if you think about the thoughts that you have, well, I'll speak for myself. Thinking mm-hmm. about the thoughts that I have in a given day, I think some of the stupidest shit throughout the day, just mm-hmm. dumb stuff. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Be, now, so, sometimes I'll if if I'm pondering a, a problem or you know i'm thinking about something that i've read some smart stuff comes up give myself credit where it's due mm-hmm. but a lot of it is like i want to drink some water it's banal oh, at the, the very yeah, the, least it's banal but here's here's the tricky thing right so let's say i'm sitting there and i'm thinking i want to vacuum right well the thought about vacuuming could lead to like this image that flashes in front of your head of somebody vacuuming up broken glass right mm. and you're like huh what's that about why are they vacuuming up that broken glass i'll, I'll mm. write that down and then when you go to translate that that feeling that you had that like the, the carpet needs to be vacuumed now that has been translated into a, a, a pure or a thought an idea right of somebody vacuuming up broken glass mm. And then when you go to write it, all of a sudden you're writing and it's like they're vacuuming up broken glass and they need to figure out how to get blood out of the carpet or whatever. Right, yeah. You have a whole thing, a whole yeah, sort yeah. Of story brewing there. Right. right. But the whole yeah. thing is like that raw material, I need to to vacuum the – that's not art, right? Something right. something happens where it goes through this refining process and, and it's a lot of sort of meditating and, and listening to it. And I – I think that he captures that really well here. Yeah. I think he captures a lot of things about the writing practice well. We were talking uh, a while back about about solitude and how people have this focus on word count, getting mm. a certain amount of words done. It's like, well, I have to get 2,000 words a day. And you, you I was sitting there because I'm currently working on a book, and the commitment that I made to myself because I'm laid off, I'm on unemployment, uh, mm-hmm two hours a day now mm-hmm. the two hours the only requirements for the two hours is that there's no phone and no uh internet no computer i have one of those little alpha smart write things that doesn't connect to the internet it's just a screen that you write mm-hmm. on um that's it there's yeah. literally no word count. so the solitude thing <clears throat> excuse me really got me too it's it's very difficult in today's world to have solitude yeah i think you Oh, I would agree. And I, well, actually, what I was going to say, you know, you reminded me, you know, this is sort of related. One thing I do love about this book, I've always, you know, kind of love stories, you know, if, if they're good, obviously, like any other kind of stuff, it has to be, has to be well done, um, where essentially you're just getting a character who's alone and kind of just wandering around, uh, you know, it's not a story with a lot of tension between characters or, you know, drama happening, romance or big cast of characters. It's a very internal kind of story, Death mm-hmm. in Venice. Mm-hmm. And 
the fact that he's able to get so much from essentially like just one character, you know, I don't know if that's maybe why it works as a novella. It might be a bit much as a novel, but that's what makes the intensity of the novella so great is it's, it's one story about a, a very, he seems to have a rich life. Like when he was in Munich, it's not like he's a misfit or anything, but it's, it's, it's a really very much a book about solitude, right? A story mm-hmm. I should say about mm-hmm. solitude. And, um, because even when he's in Venice with all the tourists, you always get the sense of von Aschenbach is alone, right? right. He's following, the, he's alone. He takes dinner alone. He does this. And he's just in his head so much. He's so much in his mind, in his own head, that he's a very um, solitary character. But you're right. It, it's a, I think it's a very hard thing in this, in this day and age um, to get that kind of, you know, to, and he, he captures that a lot. And I think he also captures very well just, you know, that a lot writing essentially is you get the sense von Aschenbach is talented. He never calls him a genius, right? Mm-hmm. He says mm-hmm. he obviously is intelligent and he's extremely erudite and well read. That's got to be clear. But he never says Aschenbach. So you get the sense he got where he got because, like you said earlier, he works, he works, he works, he works, he works. That's writing. Yeah. yeah. Right? And he prides That's, himself on it. And he prides himself on it. Right. He's a very, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, nine to five. But he doesn't talk about word count. You just know that he puts in a lot of time. Day after day, he puts in the time. That's basically There's, it. Oh, damn. I wish I And had. he's always working to increase his learning. Yeah, you can see that. Yeah. But that's it. I wish yeah. I had actually saved this line. Um but there's a bit towards the beginning in that great writing section. Gosh, why didn't I fucking save it? But there is a bit where somebody asks von Aschenbach how he uh, creates his novels, right? And there's a bit about it being like just like bricks, like bit by bit piled mm-hmm. on top of each other, like through grinding and grinding. He gets these, these, these I think, two great novels out, one about Frederick mm-hmm. the Great and uh, one about, one, I think the other one's called Maya. I don't know if I was reading that correctly, but um, but he gets yeah, that out. Yeah. And it, it says that he has these two big novels. He has a handful of essays that are well regarded, and but that he works and works and works and just right. just bit by bit by bit. It takes years and years and years, and he, he prides himself. Yeah, on yeah. That. Right. I'm looking at this. Might be the this might be it says at forty at fifty, just as he had in years past at an age when others are. Spendthrift daydreamers blindly, blithely postponing the execution of great plans. He began his day early with jets of cold water over his chest and back, and then a pair of two of tall wax candles and silver sticks shining over his manuscript for two or three fervently conscientious morning hours. He would sacrifice upon the altar of art the strength he had garnered during his sleep. You know, two or three hours. Day. That's when he mentions Maya, this book mm-hmm. Maya. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their greatness, and he talks about his books. Their books were um, their greatness was the result of patient amassment of material in short daily stints, depended upon hundreds of individual acts of inspiration. That mm-hmm. I love that phrase. It's mm-hmm. not like he had one great a book was written through one great idea. Hundreds of individual acts of inspiration, day after day, and they were ex. And they were that excellent throughout in every detail, only because the creator had held out for years under the strain of a single lengthy work with a continuity of willpower and a tenacity 
similar to those that conquered his native province and had devoted none but his hours of greatest strength and dignity to the actual composition of these books. In other words, he works his ass off. That's it. He, yeah, he works his ass off. And we, we have friends who are like this guy, right? Right, and, right. And they're and they're very successful, you know? Right, and right. You'll, you'll ask them and they'll just say, well, this is my time to write. So I go and I sit in front of the computer and I write. It's literally what separates the people who I know who are writers from the people who are not, right? Right. I right. mean, you, you, how many blog posts and articles do you write in addition to writing books? You, right, yeah. I try you write to get out of- all the time because you yeah. just sit down and you write. And right, um, that's it. And so there's a lot of really great kind of inspiration in that. Um, towards the end, mm-hmm. um, if we want to start moving towards the end. So this is why sure. it is it is a plague novel. So there's been a cholera outbreak. In, you find out gradually yeah. that uh, he's in Venice, you know, which is always t- as touristy then as it is now. You know, that's, and he finds out that there's a cholera outbreak in Venice, essentially, which has kind of been kept hidden from the people who were there as tourists. Uh, and we, we got to get into that because some things never changed. There were really some things. I, I highlighted some quotes here. I was like, holy uh, uh, shit. It's like yeah. nothing's changed in terms of how yeah. these things are handled. But yeah. um, yes, he finds out that in Venice, there's a cholera epidemic going on. That's easy. Yeah, so because, it becomes a plague novel. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who he asks sort of passes. the. There's a, there's a part where he walks past a, uh, a window that has a sign in it. And it's just this kind of thing where it's like, hey, uh, you know, you might notice the the smell of uh, germicide. That's it's nothing. It's just, you know, the, what what are the squirrels? I never looked that up because they keep talking about those. Or, oh, the, the things uh, that they say are poison. That's the kind of like wind that blows through. It's a hot oh, wind. Oh, so oh, like okay, a hot okay. miasmic kind of wind blowing off the canals, which are. You know, Venice, especially then, it must have been worse. Uh-huh. You know, with the canals and stagnant water, and they would throw their sewage in the canals. It probably was a lot of festering kind of, you know. Well, uh, yeah, there's a point where he almost faints in the book just from, right, the, right. from the air. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so the sign says, hey, everybody, relax, keep calm, nothing to see here. And then people start to disappear. Of course, von Aschenbach is so obsessed yeah. with Hatsio that he doesn't <laughs> yeah. he doesn't notice that it's steadily clearing out you know <laughs> right, right. like all, all the all the tourists are gone what's the deal what's going on after you know finally getting blood from the stone they they're finally like yeah there's uh there's there's cholera here right right um, um but by then he he's he's not gonna leave he's no he's ups- and actually he's re- it's he's he's become so sort of enamored so obsessed that he's worried that Tatsio and his family will leave, you know, because of the cholera, they'll get out of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that happens, he'll be, he absolutely will be, you know, stricken. I mean, he doesn't know what to do. He's a, he's so twisted at this point. He's afraid that the Tatsio family, which is four kids. I mean, it's a family, a family vacation they're taking, right? I mean, that's right, what they're there right, for. Right. They're going to leave to save themselves. He, he can't bear that thought because he never see Tatsio again, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he he really kind of goes off the deep end. Um, but I was go just ahead. gonna like there's when he finally starts to become aware that there is you know a cholera outbreak, he finally kind of finds it out from newspapers, not that in his hotel because in those days he's staying at a nice hotel, you know, in Venice, 
they would lay out all the newspapers from different countries, you know, in the in the hotel for the guests. That's you know, that's what they did. But he, he realizes that they're not really laying out all the newspapers because they don't want the guests to see that there's a cholera play epidemic going on in, mm-hmm. in the town, mm-hmm. in the city. But then he finds some, and this is what they say about the cholera epidemic. And tell me that when I, I outline this because it was like, tell me if this doesn't sound a little bit similar to things that happen today. <laughs> um, obsessed with gaining new reliable information about the state and progress of the disease, he leafed through the papers from home in the city coffee shops. Because uh, they're, they're talking about it in the German papers, so from home, from his home. For several days now, um, they had disappeared from the periodical table in the, in the hotel lounge. Okay. The articles alternated between assertions and retractions. The number of cases of sickness and death was said to mount up to 20, 40, even 100 and more. And immediately afterward, the very existence of the epidemic was either categorically denied or was at mm-hmm. least said to be a matter of isolated cases brought into the city from outside. There was mm-hmm. a scattering of serious warnings and protest against the dangerous game being played by the Italian authorities. There was no way of gaining any certainty. Does this sound like today? A little bit. Yeah, I could see it. <laughs> Not, nothing to see here, folks. Yeah. Nothing to see here. And, you know, the government, because yeah. it's in Venice, the dangerous game being played by the Italian authorities, they're cover. They're not really like acknowledging the extent of the severity mm-hmm. of the. I mean, this is it's like nothing yeah. changes. Nothing yeah, changes. J- January 2020 in the U.S., Dr. Fauci yeah. and Trump both. Nothing to worry about. Yeah. Don't even worry about it. Yeah, except, and, you know, he Feb- his, February. And people are arguing what's true, what's not true, except, you yeah. know, now people look at the Internet. Then he's looking at a bunch of different newspapers. But it's really the same syndrome. I was like, this is really, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. What are we what are we not seeing? Like what's being held back? And, you know, it's this weird thing about like truth getting fuzzy. It's like, well, what what is going on? You know, is, yeah. like, this is being held back. And, and here was well, another one. If I could just okay. this one was, this sure. was another good one. So, you know, what would happen? You know, the problem, obviously, what happens is if the if the um, if the cholera epidemic is where is widely publicized in Venice, they're going to lose all their tourists, which is a loss of money. So there's a passage a little bit later where it says, um, but the fear of causing general harm to the city, uh, concern for the recently opened exhibition of paintings in the public gardens, and anxiety over the tremendous losses with which the hotels, businesses, and the entire multifaceted tourist industry were threatened in case of a panic and a boycott proved to be of more weight in the city than love Mm -hmm. of truth and respect for international conventions. Those uh-huh. concerns induce the authorities to maintain obstinately their policy of silence and denial. The chief medical officer of Venice, a distinguished man, had resigned from his position indignantly and had been clandestinely replaced by a more compliant personality. I mean, this uh-huh. is exact. like if Dr. Fauci left, that's exactly what or the guy in Brazil, the health minister of Brazil. Was they literally did that. They the, literally replaced they literally, him. Literally, yeah. that just happened. I mean, this is... Yeah. And, He's talking about something that's, you know, a, a fictional cholera epidemic, or probably there was something like this, probably. And it's the exact same syndrome. It's amazing. Right. Yeah. You know? I, I actually do like the idea of Fauci disappearing tomorrow, and there's just this big bubba who replaces him. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. come on, y'all, look. It's like, I mean, some people are sick. I mean, come on. Like, what are <laughs> yeah. And Trump's like, I love this guy. He's great. Right. Fantastic. Right. Right. Shoots from the hip. Tells it like it is. Right. Um, 
But no, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is something that to kind of go back to something you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that is what's interesting as you get a little bit older reading these books that we think of as classics. I think mm. I might do a deep dive into some classic books. We had talked about Don Quixote perhaps or yeah. something like that, but there you just you have to kind of live a little before they they make sense, you know? I I think that's the I think that's it. No, I agree. Yeah. You have to live a little you have to live a little and you know, some of it's just the style. It's hard to read these things when you're younger just from the style and this actually was was an easy read. I, I was surprised that it is a quick yeah. read. It's a very readable, and the narrative really moves forward. You know, it has like it's not like a, a an action story, obviously, but it really does have a good narrative momentum and drive. It really. Does. I'd say he. I say he cuts out most bullshit. I don't think there's very. I don't really know what would get cut because I like the stuff that he leaves in about kind of walking around Venice and all oh, the yeah. kind of trips that it takes. And it's so funny that all this. You can put all this cool style and work on these sentences, but if you just kind of describe someone sitting on a beach as a reader, I'm like, ah, I know. that's that's great. I, you want to hear? <laughs> I agree. You want to hear something fun? Like, remember that? I mean, that we just mentioned earlier the early scene where he, when he first arrives in Venice and he uh, gets off, sort of at the Grand Canal or the, the the Piazza San Marco area, and he needs to catch a gondolier. To go to his actual, like a gondolier taxi to his hotel. And he winds up, they, a bunch of taxi driver gondoliers sort of try to like get his attention. And he gets into one, turns out to be like an uh, unauthorized gondolier. And all the other yeah. gondolier guys are trying to warn him that guy's not honest, he's full of shit and right. stuff. And again, in these notes, they, these notes were really were actually pretty cool. That happened apparently to Thomas Watt. So the, and the person oh, made, cool. writing the commentary said, so that was a real thing. Like they were unauthorized gondolier taxi drivers, you know, in yeah. Venice pissing off the other guy. I love that kind of detail because it makes it very real. This great classic. It's like, so we got a bad taxi driver. Like you get in New York or Los Angeles yeah. or something, you know. People have been running this scam forever. <laughs> I'm sure if we go back to ancient Egypt, there would be like a Some camel cha- guy. A chariot. <laughs> yeah, a guy on a camel. <laughs> everybody's like, don't go with him. Seriously, he's going to take you to... Because he also get he gets ones that takes him to every shop. Like he just keeps stopping. And he, he just he's like, I just want to get to my fucking hotel. And he's like, you know, know. but sir, don't you, don't you want to look at these lovely beads and you know, <laughs> right, right. this kind of shit? It's like, oh yeah, it's always been the same. Everything's right, right. always been the same. But um, but getting yeah. back to your point, like when you if you read this stuff when you're younger, or they give us some of these these kind of books in school, it's just like, oh, uh, you know. But then you, you're right. You have to be a little older, maybe live a little, read a little bit more too. That's a big part of it, probably. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you realize, like the truth of like the, 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 you know, it's a cliche, but like the truthfulness, the universal, eternal truthfulness of, and some of it is not. It's not always like great, profound stuff. Like something about mm-hmm. a, a taxi driver who pisses the other ones off, or the guy keeps stopping at shops. It's just a great detail that you would get yeah. when you're older. It's not even about art or something philosophical. It's just a great realistic detail. That's humorous, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- and these classics, a lot of these kind of books are filled with that kind of stuff as much as anything else. You just don't see it when you're younger. That's all, you know. Yeah, yeah. So we're making great time, and we're covering a lot of cool territory. So I have, so we get to the end, right? Yeah. Uh, well, it's in the title, so it's not really a. Yeah, no, right. He, uh, yeah. Spoiler alert. Right. 
he dies uh he dies a little now here's what's interesting i didn't take a screenshot of this again i wish i had um michael cunningham does the intro to this particular uh edition of death in venice okay. which is new, uh, newer than i believe the one that you read because this is yeah, the this is the henry heim uh right. version and he actually cunningham points out that in um the earlier version he says that uh Von Aschenbach's death is portrayed as a little bit more uh, clownish, maybe with like maybe the the word choice is a bit derisive, right? And oh, what okay. he says is that in this version, he sees it as more of like a sympathetic, like the words have been changed ever so subtly to to be mm. more sympathetic to the character. Okay, so that's, again, yeah. not not sure if that's the case or not. I'd have to do my own research into that. But again, it's interesting what translation can do. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just uh, there's a there's a quote from the end here. So he's sort of like this is kind of a thought that he's having is he's, uh, you know, his his brain is shorting out, right? Mm. And it's from uh, uh, Socrates, right? So this character, this Socrates character that had been mentioned earlier. Uh, comes kind of comes out he's sort of mumbling right mm. and he's sort it's it's the sort of socrates character so it's a little bit of a long quote we can kind of pick it apart so socrates speaking to phaedrus for beauty phaedrus mark thou well beauty and beauty alone is at once divine and visible it is hence the path of the man of the senses little phaedrus the path of the artist to the intellect but dost thou believe, dear boy, that the man for whom the path to the intellect leads through the senses can ever find wisdom and the true dignity of man? Or dost thou rather believe, I leave it to thee to decide, that it is a perilously alluring path, indeed a path of sin and delusion, that must lead one astray? For surely thou knowest that we poets cannot follow the path of beauty, lest Eros should join forces with us and take the lead. Yes, Though heroes we may be after our fashion, and chaste warriors, we are as women, for passion is our exaltation and our longing must ever be love, such as our bliss and our shame. Now dost thou see what we poets can that we poets can neither be wise nor dignified, that we must needs go astray, ever be wanton and adventurers of the emotions? I love this. The magisterial guise of our style is all falsehood and folly, mm. our fame and prestige a farce. The faith that the public places in us, nothing if not ludicrous, and the use of art to educate the nation and its youth, a hazardous enterprise that should be outlawed. For how can a man be worthy as an educator if he have a natural, inborn, incorrigible penchant for the abyss? Much as we renounce it and seek dignity, we are drawn to it. Thus do we reject, say, analytical knowledge, knowledge phaedrus lacks dignity and rigor it is discerning understanding forgiving and wanting in discipline and form it is in sympathy with the abyss it is the abyss yeah i'm looking at the same it's amazing how different in some ways that but i'm looking yeah. at the passage now because i have how, that that, passage that rocks that, that rocks. rocks that totally right it's a great passage and i i highlighted that passage on my kindle i'm looking at it right now yeah yeah fantastic yeah. Uh, part yeah but yeah. I mean, what? So, what did you like sort of take from that? I mean, some of the, in, you know, some of the stuff. What are some of the things you took from that? that so, the, some of the things that I took from it. First of all, that again, the conversation that really stuck out to me in this uh, book is is about is about this thing about 
you kind of brought it up, the Apollonian, the Dionysian, right? Like, so this, mm. this whole idea of this duality um, and him sort of going off the deep end into one. But what this passage appears to be saying is that even when, um, even when von Aschenbach was sitting in that uh, solitude, even when, when he was, you know, being a, a good German, right, and studiously and, and, and through hard work, was doing his writing. What this passage is suggesting to me is that that's just like putting a mask on something that's much darker uh, mm. and that is inherently dark. So it's interesting that he says eros here because, uh, you know, it, it makes me think of Jungian depth psychology, right? Mm. And and the fact that to the imagination to, to some people is is the same as like, you know, the subconscious, you know, mm. this this like kind of deep, dark place. And the idea that inherently to go down into it, you can pretend all day that you're mm. Mr. Mr. You know, I'm Mr. Writer. But what you're doing is a type of shamanism every time you're like you're going to a place and picking things out of it. That is that is that is dark. We are always in a state of uh, desire and longing and wanting and and, you know, lusting no matter how much you try to dress it up. That's what I, mm. that's what I took. I kind of took something, I took something, I think pretty much very similar to you. I mean, uh, you know, the, the path, the way it's translated here is similar. I mean, I can follow everything you were saying. There's some different words. I mean, that's another story. It's, it's fascinating to read, but the, the translation here also uses arrows. I mean, so that must be specific, you know, he must've used that word mm-hmm. and they couldn't get it. Um, I kind of took it the same. I mean, there's the Apollyon Dionysian thing. And I kind of took it to be like, you know, basically this idea, like when you have this sort of abstract idea of beauty, it almost always gets overtaken by essentially sex. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. the sex drive. Yeah. That's uh-huh. really what it seems to be, what he's, yeah. to put it crudely, maybe, but that's yeah. kind of what he's talking about. Yeah, right? all writing is, is writing about sex, basically. Or it comes from sex, or, you know, it comes from sex, or, you know, you, you think that you're... Because what he he says what he says specifically is basically the same thing. The master's pose of our style is a lie of folly. Our fame and honorable status of a farce. That's all like a, a covering, a, a dressing for what's underneath, mm-hmm. which is uncontrollable. If it's let yeah. loose, it's uncontrollable, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and no, I I, I think it's, so. It's funny, like I sort of get the sense like von Aschenbach or Mann, because Mann seemed to be like this kind of you know, very controlled figure. He wrote, wrote great novels and he's big. He, under, he understands that underneath all of that, there's basically something that's churning and that's, if let loose, or if, if it gains control, which it did with von Aschenbach, leads, uh, you know, eventually to, to, to probably to destruction if it goes to its logical conclusion, mm-hmm. right? Obsession and then destruction. Obsession yeah. and destruction, yeah. Right. It can't be, it can't be kept in the realm of just enjoying or draw, drawing inspiration from or just appreciating in an ideal sense beauty it just it can't remain at that level it has to go and it can be there for a bit which he does in the book for a chapter or two but once he keeps dwelling on it and keeps dwelling on it mm-hmm. um, it becomes something destructive obsessive and then destructive you know right right because yeah. he's only he's only writing for two to three hours a day but he can't stop looking at Tazio, right? right? He can't he can't mitigate it. Again, there is this sort of idea of um of discipline and control 
and and not letting it get out of control. But again, there's this sort of fatalistness to it, right? I don't think that's a word, but we'll go with it. Yeah. Where he's he's essentially saying here that this is where this is where all art goes, right? Yeah. He's it's sort of a heart of darkness story in a way, right? In like a way, in yeah. a way, it's it's a kind of more of a emotional or sex, uh, yeah, sort of emotional heart of the. It's not a physical. I mean, it's not a like you know geographical journey like Heart of Darkness. The psychological becomes geographic. You know, it, it geographically takes a trip up a river. Here he's it's more it's it's more cerebral. He's in his mind, but it's you're right. It's kind of that. It's that kind of a journey. It really is. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, go ahead. And, and that's sort of you know sort of in the way like Humbert Humbert, uh, who's also like an esthete. He's a writer. He's very erudite. He's very uh, I think, you know, he comes across and you, it's in his voice and it's a longer book. So he does kind of come across as more perverse, I think, than a Van Aschenbach. I really do. Mm-hmm. But he also, like, can't, by the end, he's like, all of that control and his irony, it's all, it completely gets swept away in his passion for this essentially ordinary 12-year-old girl, right? I mean, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. he falls prey to the same thing Van Aschenbach does. Although right. there he does get to, you know, they do have sex. I mean, there's more that goes on there, obviously. Because Von mm-hmm. Aschenbach, we should make it clear, he doesn't even touch Ted's turd thoughts. Maybe once he brushes his shoulder, there's a creepy scene where he's no, there's a creepy scene where he's following him and in he's the alleyway. Reaching, and he's yeah, reaching yeah. out and he's doing this kind of he's a very dramatic man. He's like doing yes, this thing where he's reaching yes. out and then he's going, No, but I must not. And he begins yes, to, yeah, to yeah. shake and he's holding himself. And then he tries again. But no, I must not. And he, right, he, right. he pulls it back again. Um, that's as close as he comes. But that's yeah, as close as he comes. And it's, yeah. but yeah, but it it doesn't, it, it the relationship with Tatsio is it cannot be consummated, right? Because no, Tatsio no, is right. is art, you know, like right, right. There, there's there's a barrier there. Um, might as well be a physical barrier between right. well, between the two well, of them. Well, one dip I mean, one big difference between this, actually, that's a good point when you mention that, between this and we mentioned it, in some ways, it's kind of like a precursor or it's, you, it'd be a good double bill. You, know, you can read this and then you can read mm-hmm. Lolita. But one thing I think that is very different, aside from the points of view, uh, is it's not clear, forgetting about the movie, in the book Lolita, it's not that clear. The Lolita essentially is like an ordinary 12-year-old girl, and she's beautiful in the eyes of Humbert. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not clear what you know, she's clearly not like ugly or anything, but she's not he you he's enamored of her, but she seems more or less like an ordinary 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas Tazio clearly is beautiful, right? Right. Like if you saw if I saw Tazio, we might not be sexually attracted. If you you might not lose your head, but you say that is, you know. There's something like you get the idea that Tatsio would get anyone's attention if they really right. appreciated mm-hmm. beauty. So that is a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, how you react to it, not everyone would go would lose their mind like Von Aschenbach. Mm-hmm. But I think it's clear that he has an there's an objective beauty to Tatsio. Right. And there's and and inside of all that is death because remember Tatsio is also very sickly, right? I kind of that's like, right. That's right. I kind right. of yeah. thought of it like, what if he's the patient zero, you know, of this cholera <laughs> outbreak? That's right. Um, yeah, it's good. Uh, it's so that that's that's my pet theory about the whole thing. But because it would make a lot of sense, even if it's just like a a metaphorical connection, right? He's he he too is sickly, right? Yeah. So he mentions with, that several times. Tatsio is yeah. not long for this world. Yeah, and it, there's a there's a right. creepy line where it says. Um, 
Tatsuya was not long for this world. It smiled. It made it made him happy to think of that. You know, yeah, that, like, yeah. that, that at God. some point, at some point, something this beautiful will die. So the again, we're we're getting into some pretty standard uh, psychological territory here. Sex and mm. death being wrapped up together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the femme fatale, right? Like yeah. Tatsuya's basically a femme fatale, except he's just a teenage boy, so he doesn't really right, do right. anything. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, the, like those two things are inextricably linked together. You know, you can't be, you can't beat the Germans for love death. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Eros, Thanatos, yeah. love death. I'm saying, yep. no, you really, you know, you, you really yep. can't beat the Germans for that kind of thing. But no, that's. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm ignorant of the date of this book. Would Would Mon have read Freud and Jung and? Those, uh, those I, it was 1911, so he might have. He would. I don't. He oh, okay. might have read. Jung's a little Freud. bit later. Yeah. Jung's later. I know he was very big with. Um, uh, he, he definitely read a lot of Nietzsche and you know Schopenhauer, mm-hmm. all the classic mm-hmm. German mm-hmm. philosophers. He was big on Wagner, mm-hmm. uh, which you know, Wagner is big on Love Death. Um, I don't think probably not. Probably not uh, Jung. Maybe Niet- Freud. That'd be interesting to know about. That's true. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. 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 That, there's, there's something to it. There, I, I think that his ideas. It goes, okay. So Jung came out of. He was. He was. A, not student. He was like a, a friend of Freud's, right? Like a. a friend and come for a while, sort of. Not student, but like kind of protege. Under him. He was protege. To there be we go. A protege. That's yeah. the word. Yeah. And he then was, they broke. They broke. Then right? they broke. So, right. Yeah. So if Jung is like this extension of Freud that goes in a different way, it would be. And I think that he met Freud like after World War One, right? I think it might have been Jung before. did. You mean Jung did? Jung did. No, 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 yeah. no. Jung met Freud before. Anyway, it's all in the same area. So if they're reading the same things, it's interesting that there would be this thing that I noticed, this kind of like almost Jungian archetypal idea to that final sort of passage that he's talking about, and 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 the stuff that Socrates says in the book. Um, because that means they both sort of went in, they read Freud and then sort of went and took it like that step further. Which yeah. this is, of course, all, all conjecture, complete conjecture. Right. But I'd, I'd like to look that, I mean, I, Mon seems to me, obviously, is like another one of these people, kind of like the encyclopedia. He had, I would be surprised if he wasn't aware of Freud by 1911. Yeah. Right. right. I really, I really, Freud's in Vienna, you yeah. know, he's in Munich because he, he was apparently like the, even his house was very similar to the house presented here. So he's in Munich, and he clearly was someone who was up on everything. I, yeah. it'd, be, it'd be amazing if you didn't know who Freud was. He really would yeah. at this point. Yeah. Um, and he's yeah. another one. He actually, you know, he lived many, many years in the United States because he left like around 1931. He left Germany, and he lived like the last, certainly lived a long time in the United States, a couple of decades or two in the United States, mm. Thomas Mann, in Los Angeles. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. That's, Wow. Yeah, get get a death in Los Angeles going on. Yeah, no, there was yeah, that whole German community, the directors who came, all these people came over from Germany. I should say, like, if you, if anyone, um, I don't think it's on DVD now, or it's it's a pity, but the movie version of this is really really good. It's very faithful to the uh, to the book. Filmed in Venice, Lucino Visconti, you know, great Italian director, and Dirk Bogart plays plays yeah. him uh, like perfectly. I mean, huh. and it really gets sort of the ludicrousness as he st- as he as he's pursuing, watching, following Tatsuyo, and he's falling, he's sweating, and he's you know he's tired, and he's trying to look nice, 
And yeah. he's, he's re- the, like the pathetic quality really comes mm-hmm. out. Maybe even more in the movie than in the book. Because I was in the story. I was kind of surprised he's not quite as pathetic. He is pathetic enough, I guess. Mm-hmm. But um, mm-hmm. if you ever get a chance, it's, it is. It's a very good adaptation of, uh, you know. Of the of the story that of the, of death in Venice and whoever the boy was they got to play him like an unknown you know it was mm-hmm. perfect long blonde hair with the curls and everything like right. just like you'd picture Tazio I I saw the movie years ago but now that I read the book I can see like how good a read the story how good an you know perfect adaptation it was really spot on adaptation so awesome. it's, it's, cool yeah, yeah, yeah maybe we look around see if that's on a streaming service or something but uh, yeah yeah right on that note. I think that's it. I think that's a wrap. Scott, yep. okay. thanks so much for coming on and taking the time to talk about this book with me. I, I appreciate oh, yeah. the recommendation. I, I really I really enjoyed it. It was fun to read and discuss. Yeah, definitely. That was good. That was really fun. <laughs>